I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, the podcast formerly known as Conversation to Takshashila. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bangalore, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. I'm Yazad, an economist. Hello, and welcome to Conversations at Takshashila. Today we have General Prakash Menon and Pranay Kothasthane, and I'm Yazad Jal. And our discussion is going to be on national security, which has turned out to be quite a hot topic in party manifestos. It's a good start to see how political parties see national security. Pranay, yeah. So I think uh, I will first ask this question to General Menon. Manifestos, anyways, try to represent. a vision that parties uh, want to realize in due course of time right so general man first i want to ask you what according to you would be the vision for a national security manifesto what should it be rather i would think that uh, by i think quoting from arthasastra that a national security vision must be based on yogakshema and strength is power and well being is the goal should be what should guide the national security considerations so if you really want to look at it as a vision i think we need to look at four interdependent domains the first one is to create and defend a conducive environment for your workshema which is the well being prosperity and happiness of all indians and at this stage of india's development national security is primarily focused on protecting and promoting india's economic development secondly national security should also include protecting the constitutional order individual liberty territory social cohesion and national resources and thirdly it should amass and project power across all domains and the fourth and this is also very as important as the others we should reimagine a national security capacity i think if these four broad issues are looked at then that should form the foundations of a national security vision right so let's uh, this is what we imagine a national security vision should be now let's come to what these parties have announced and what are some of the issues in there and do they actually go towards meeting this vision or are they taking us away from that vision so uh, i think uh, one of the first things which we should actually ask ourselves is that uh, this time the manifestos of the major parties seem to have uh, front ended in many ways the national security issue and that's very interesting because normally uh, domestic political conversation which is the basics of the manifestos uh, don't front end national security so uh, we understand why this is so because it looks like parties have uh, is using probably fear as the dominant emotion this time rather than hope rather as it was before so i think there is a switch in this particular emotion which is now being leveraged and therefore national security concerns seem to have got front ended and i think that that is probably the reason why but i but also the case that it's a good thing that national security is receiving the type of attention that it is doing 
as long as the aim is to is to understand where it stands in india's larger issues at play and whether this political sudden uh, liking for national security is going to be good or bad we'll have to only time will judge but as a as a military person i think it's a good thing the national security at least is a major part of the conversation but i would think that it should not become the only, only part right. that is the danger that's hmm. true so one of the proposals that is is statutory status for the nsc the nsa and the nsab what do you think about uh, about that well i think the suggestion is very valid for the present system the nsc the nsa and even the nsab are actually uh, well nsc and the nsa came about after the group of ministers report was on the kargil war uh, that's the time when actually government established these two institutions and they were instituted by an executive order and therefore they do not have any statutory pass no such no other responsible to parliament the fact that the nsa and the nsc play such a crucial role in a subject which is of grave concern to the country there is all the more reason that this should become a statutory body because they must be given pass and they must be answerable also to parliament so that i think is a is a one a major reason as far as the nsab is concerned the nsab predates the nsc and the nsa uh, is but it predates in its institution but it never functioned during that time it actually was created during vp singh's time and therefore the nsab which is the national security advisory board is that body which is constituted by people who are outside the government and who can uh, provide policy advice because they are no longer tethered to what the thinking in the government is they could independently think and that was the reason why this nsab was established and uh, this nsab has functioned to a large extent except for the present government which is actually uh, after the last nsab in to i think 2015 finished their tenure they have had very few members it's been a very small body and one cannot comment was what they have done but apparently the body was definitely not interdisciplinary which is the fundamental necessity for any advice to be given to the government you must have expertise across disciplines because national security has linkages which is much beyond the topic itself which is being examined so i think it's a good idea for all these three bodies to be to be given a statutory status whether this will come about will depend upon what the parliament will finally decide whether the party in par will want it or not because this only comes from one single party which is the congress party so uh in jammu and kashmir happens to be you know as usual a topic that's perhaps always there and so there's a party that's talked about zero tolerance on terrorism and extremism and continuing a policy of giving a free hand to the security forces 
On the other hand, side, there are parties that talk about reviewing the Arms Forces Special Powers Act. So, you know, in in all of this, what do you see as the best way ahead? Well, uh, one is actually, uh, if you look at the manifestos and their approach to JNK, uh, one could say that one party adopts a very hard approach and the other party is, well, it's it's not hard, but it's definitely not also very soft, but, but it's somewhere in between. But the hard approach is the one which they say as a continuance of a hard approach, which means that you have zero tolerance to terrorism and extremism. What does this mean, zero tolerance? Well, this word was actually used before to human rights violations, which means you never tolerated a human right violation. And so it was to be part of uh, the lexicon of describing what is our approach towards human rights violations. Now we are used the same thing to terrorism and extremism. And I think it's just, uh, I don't think any government can be tolerant to extremism or uh, terrorism. So this is actually doesn't make any uh, this thing, whether it is on whichever side you said you can't be tolerant to anything. And the other issue about AFSPA, which you actually said, the review of the AFSPA is what has been one, by one party have asked for a review. Uh, I would agree that a review of the AFSPA is long overdue. And it is also said in the same breath that it is about balancing the human rights with the ability or the uh, or freedom given to the armed forces. You know, it is about this balance, which are, or protection of armed forces. How do you strike this balance? Uh, well, uh, if you, you would have probably heard about the instance where these several hundred officers of the armed forces went to court and asked for protection because they were being hauled up for actions which they had taken while they were in serving under the in in a particular place and they said that we need to be protected from this not they didn't want protection uh, uh, from the law they wanted protection by the law for for acts which they had done in good faith so i would agree that this is a very serious concern because you can't allow a person who is retired and gone home and sitting, suddenly being asked to appear before the court for some act which he is supposed to have done while being part of a group which carried out a particular operation maybe 15 or 20 years ago. I mean, I think it would be unfair to subject the armed forces to uh, to be to expose them to this. So some sort of protection requires to be given. So there is an issue about giving more protection to the armed forces itself. The other issue is about the, the human rights and, and, and whether the armed forces, special powers acts, gives impunity to the armed forces to act and do what they want without being answerable to anybody. So this is actually something which needs to be examined. Uh, it is time that there is a review, but a review should I think they have said to strike that balance, and I think it's a it's a good idea. And General Menon, on this topic itself, our overall goal should be that the our defense forces are not like are not required 
to face our own people right in the sense that they should be facing external threats so i clearly i think a review of AF- afspa is at least trying to get us towards that uh, particular direction probably not quite because the already the government has already decided much long ago that finally counter insurgency will be taken over by the what we call the central arm arm uh, police which is the crpf is actually the the basic the uh, the crpf in fact have raised a lot of units but unfortunately they have inducted crpf units but the army continues to still be there because the crpf has not yet grown enough or become sufficient to replace uh, the army for the roles that it has to play that's unfortunate because it's been such time so that decision has already been taken but the point is like this that as long as the armed forces are deployed they must have two things they must actually have operational freedom and secondly they must have legal protection which is what armed forces special powers do wherever this needs to be weighed against the issue of human rights it should be it should not be weighted one only on one side and that's the balance which they have talked about it's a very critical balance and it will not be easy to enact a law which actually does this because this balance is difficult to make because of the nature of the conditions under which the armed forces are acting and under of the conditions which prevail there so it's it's not going to be easy but we must give it a try so uh, i actually wanted to stay on this topic uh, one party has talked about this free hand to security forces uh so what does this free hand really mean and is it a good thing i don't think this there could be anything called a free hand when you are dealing with application of force especially internally yeah to our own people so absolutely not so uh, the legal system on which we are operating is actually based on a law and order situation the framework is for law and order but we use the same legal framework actually for even when it the situation is beyond law and order like in jnk and so on and to say that you're going to give a free hand to your security forces means that you would allow them to do and tackle issues the way that they want to do which means there is i mean it would mean free hand would mean that there is very little or no political guidance i think that would be very dangerous because in the end these are con- these are conflicts within the country our citizens are involved there is a lot of sensitivity on how force is to be applied the principle of minimum force must actually be the guiding principle for application of force and a free hand denotes that the security forces do what they want the way they want to do it i don't think it's a good idea so now let's go on to issues outside jnk which they are talking about so one party manifesto and this issue keeps coming up in many many manifestos is this idea of cds chief of defense staff so again this has come up in one of the manifestos that a cds will be established why is this so important gentlemen and why does it keep coming every manifesto 
Well, uh, the CDS is the chief of defense staff. Uh, we are one of the only probably very few countries of the size of the armed forces that we have, which doesn't have a permanent person at the top of the military hierarchy. And that's what the CDS is supposed to do. In our case, the CDS recommendation came from the group of ministers report, which is which was after Cargill, which was unimplemented because there was opposition within the political circles, the bureaucracy, and definitely from one wing of the armed forces itself. And so it has remained unimplemented. Uh, in fact, uh, in 2015, I was at the India Today conclave when the then defense minister, the late Mr. Parikar, said that uh, the CDS would actually be forthcoming in the next couple of months. But it has not happened for various reasons. But the, uh, to answer the question, why do we need it? Well, CDS is not, firstly, the golden key to the problem of inter-services cooperation or civil-military issues. It is not the golden key. But I think we should see it as an important enabling step, the trigger which will allow other things to happen, which cannot happen unless you have the CDS. And let me just explain this. The CDS is the person who will be the senior most military officer who will also provide a single point military advice to the government. Today, if the government wants advice from the uh, three services chiefs, they will speak on behalf of their service. The government, therefore, does not get advice, military advice, which is an integrated advice from the three services because the three services, once they don their service hats, are unable to rise above it, even though we have one of them actually also double-hatting as the chairman chief of staff's committee. So, and, 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 and that, yeah, the chairman chief of staff itself is actually an appointment which is, because of its rotational, sometimes you have a chairman chief of staff for just two months or three months. I mean, it doesn't make any... So, so important steps like integrated commands, you know, uh, integration between the armed forces and the MOD can only come about if there is a CDS because he will be the enabling element in this. And to him to become an enabling element, it requires political backing because unless he get that, it will be impossible for him to carry out these reforms because within between the three services, they might not be able to decide this. You require not only political backing to these reforms, you require some single person to do it. But I think there is another important factor why India needs a CDS because we are a nuclear power. A nuclear power is without a CDS is really... Is, is it's 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 frankly is irresponsible because we are now in a situation where we say that nuclear weapons could be alerted come into play during a conflict a conventional conflict and we expect that one of the three chiefs who's double hatting who double hatted would actually leave his service to be run by his vice chief and would be sitting with the Prime Minister 
giving advice. I don't think that will be practical. No service chiefs would actually be willing to let his vice chief run their service during a war and spend his time with the prime minister. So on, even on that on that count, we need a CDS. So the CDS is an important element, but let us not think that it is the silver bullet. But without it, nothing else can happen. Uh, another sensitive and emotional issue that comes out in national security manifestos is this issue of ex-servicemen. Right? So it has come up in these manifestos as well. One party has said that OROP has been implemented and now as a next step, uh, a few months before the uh, servicemen retire, they'll be giving them training so that they can transition into uh, other spheres. While, the, uh, while another party has also proposed about how after retirement at the age of 40, for soldiers, they will be incorporated into other uh, service agencies like the paramilitary forces. So what do you think about these ideas which are floating around for ex-servicemen welfare? Well, I think all these ideas have already been examined and they don't work. So you're restating something which has been tried out. Look at the, uh, the lateral induction or people who have retired from the armed forces going into the CAPFs. The vacancies are there, but no soldier after served in the army after going into retirement wants to go and serve in this in the central armed forces. So it's it's a failed measure. And there are already lot of training and skills for people before retirement to skill them for jobs in the civil. This is already there. So there is nothing new about it. In fact, the problem is not about imparting skills. Problem is finding suitable jobs for them after they are skilled and after they leave. That is the problem which has to be resolved. I think we have to look at this whole issue of resettlement of servicemen completely differently in the sense of actually reversing or inverting the process of uh, having a system by which we, we need to have a certain percentage of the armed forces initially being selected by various central armed police forces and then sent to the army to serve for about five to seven years and then revert back and so on so that the issues of seniority and all are protected. The pension will come down. So it's uh, it's something which I think we are... Uh, we, we need to look at and, uh, and as you know we are working on a document for this so that will soon be in the public space but what these proposals we suggested are nothing new doesn't work uh, one other issue that has been brought up by both parties is defense manufacturing what are their proposals and how uh, relevant would these be well, there are, there are no substantial, I mean, details about these proposals, except to say that we will support the um, uh, establishing uh, the capability for defense manufacturing. As you know, that is one of our strategic weakness. We continue to be now the second largest imp importer of arms after Saudi Arabia. Uh, so this is not anything new. Both governments have tried. But all we know is they haven't succeeded. But uh, we need to actually 
look at it from the point of view as how do we leverage the capacity of our public sectors and marry them with the capacity from our private sector. I mean, that's the fundamental challenge which has to be faced. How do we marry these two elements? Because our public sector has got fairly good infrastructure, but they do not have the human capital. Human capital is in the private sector. So how do we marry human capital in the private sector with the infrastructure in the public sector is how this model has to be managed. So far, they have not been able to do so. And uh, certainly, the public sector has a lot to answer for because that is what our dependence has been. And uh, any move towards the private sector has been politically very sensitive and most of these uh, allegations will fly about scams and so on come from this problem. So governments have been very reticent about getting the private sector into defense manufacturing. But without that, I don't think it will be possible. I think one more issue that we should discuss about is this idea of defense budgets. Again, they find mentions in every manifesto. So what have been the takes on the defense budget and what do you think about it? Well, I think that both uh, I mean, the parties have sort of said that they will definitely meet all the needs of the armed forces, which would mean that they are willing to spend the money to do that. Uh, so the fact that we have one of the lowest percentage of GDP defense budgets now itself is indication that defense budget definitely requires to be propped up. And I don't think anybody is questioning about that because the needs are so much that we hardly have any money in, with the budget which is presently being provided, which is about, I think, 1.62 of the GDP, whether we can actually even modernize, which means make all the capital investments required. So that is not in doubt. The question is, I think both parties have indicated that they are willing to spend more for the defense of the country. I mean, that is the indication. Whether they will do it afterwards is another matter. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and this is this seems like a like a motherhood statement which all parties will say, right? They want to increase defense expenditure, but to increase defense expenditure, you have to cut expenditure somewhere or you have to generate more money. Uh, unless either of these happens, it's it's all good to say this they want to do, but I, do, I haven't seen any ideas on other two fronts. They, I mean, I, the, the point is that no government ever says that they will hold back money for defense. Yeah. In fact, the normal, this thing is, don't worry, we will make the money available, even if it is not budget. But that's a political statement which we know is normally hollow in its uh, in its substance. Yeah, but this question is of great importance now, particularly because of the substantial increase in pension expenditure. So even though defense expenditure has increased, a large part of it is in going to pensions. And the fact that even the capital expenditure is for already, it's already committed for. So when we talk about modernization and future warfare, it, the situation is becoming even more important and needs to be addressed now. No doubt. The pensions are going to put a lot of pressure on the defense budget. And uh, OROP has already done that. We'll have to think about a way as to how in the long run do we resolve this issue because this cannot be and cannot really sustain because otherwise we will be just maintaining ourselves without creating capital assets. 
So, uh, this has been a great discussion. Th- is there anything else, General Menon, that... Uh, I want to put General Menon on a spot. Okay. I, want to, I want to ask him, what is it that you would have liked to see in a manifesto? Say, suppose you were given the chance and you were disappointed when you went through the manifestos that did, didn't find mention at all. I think what the the bo- both parties, any party should have committed to is they will eventually, they will come out with a national security strategy. I think that document is required to guide the development of our strength. Without that document, we will grow episodically. We will go without balance between the parts. And I think it is unfortunate that both these manifestos have not even spoken about it. And I think that's the greatest uh, deficiency in it. On that hopeful note, thank you so much, General Menon. Thank you, Pranay. Thanks. Thank you. We'd love to hear what you think about this chat. Check us out on our Twitter handle at Takshashila Inst or on our Quora space, All Things Policy. For the latest analysis and research on strategic and economic affairs, visit our website at takshashila.org.in and tune in for our next episode.